So you gotta ask yourself, finding yourself listening to the fourth part of the God of God series on 365 Honest Questions, listening to me, your long-suffering host Dante Stack, rattle off an 80-second question, that being, what are the Elohim up to? You gotta ask yourself, do you feel lucky? Punk. Well, do ya? On the fourth part of our God of God series, we're looking at polytheism in the Bible, but not your pagan polytheism, your evangelical orthodox polytheism. We've come to use this word polytheism because the Old Testament uses the word Elohim to both denote God and false gods, or that which we commonly refer to as false gods, as well as like dead spirits. Take dead Samuel, for instance, whom Saul sees after he's well long and dead. Today, in my mind, there is one director living, acting, and working that stands above all the rest right now, as far as we are currently seeing the peak work of this guy. Now, you could easily make a case for Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, but I think if you point to any of those guys and you say, hey, what's the best thing that guy made? All of their memorable works, the stuff that we're going to be talking about them, in film studies books for the next 50, 100 years. All that stuff is at least 25 years ago, right? So scrap those guys out and your list shortens. Now, maybe you disagree with me that this director isn't the finest, but he certainly made the most impact when you look at the cross-section of dollars made and cultural influence and the influence he's had on the film industry. I don't see anyone standing above Christopher Nolan right now. And I just watched the trailer for Dunkirk, his World War II flick that's coming out this summer. Mm, That looks good, and I'm sure it's going to be good. Anyway, Christopher Nolan, this isn't a film podcast, so let's not talk about him anymore. But his second feature-length film, an independent film, but it really threw him on the scene, and all of us film junkies ate it up, and to this day, I don't think there's been film like it, is the movie Memento. The crazy concept that fuels the movie is... It's about a guy who has short-term memory loss. So he essentially can't make new memories, and he's trying to hunt down throughout the film his wife's murderer. But he can't make new memories, so essentially his brain resets to a certain point in the past every 15 minutes or so. And in order to make us feel what that main character feels, the movie plays in reverse. Not exactly literally, but it'll play a 15-minute scene, or actually much less, a 5-minute scene, because that's as long of the attention span, the memory span, of our main character. And then it goes and it tells 
15 minutes directly before that moment, and the whole movie moves chronologically in reverse. It is entertaining as Get Out, a miracle of modern filmmaking and idea spinning, because it works so well. Today, I am trying to do the same thing. This whole series, it's investigating God in his heavenly kingdom and what's been going on there through history. And today, I want to go in reverse. So initially, I wanted to start with Dr. Michael Heiser, who wrote the book Unseen Realms, his theory about what's going on in the heavenlies, and kind of push us through there. This episode's pretty much all wrapped up in Dr. Heiser's theory. But I thought more or less we should arrive at his thesis looking at a specific passage in the Old Testament rather than start there and move forward. I want to show the necessity for this sort of theory, even if it's not a theory that you or I ultimately embrace. Okay? Makes sense? And the other reason I want to do this is because when I've talked to friends and read some blogs and whatnot about this particular theory, there seems to be one big roadblock for people. And that's expressed in various ways. But the big way, I think, is, hey, Dante, you're taking these little bits of scriptural fragments and blowing them out of proportion. You're creating a whole theology that upends all of, you know, church history because of a couple lines in a couple different verses here and there. You're making mountains out of molehills. You can't do that. That's how we get weird, trippy cult religions all the time because they take one verse out of context and create a whole theology out of it. That's how we get Westboro Baptists that believe that God is hate for some reason. So this episode, on top of trying to further our narrative and try to further our work here in this particular subseries, God of Gods, is also trying to answer that criticism before we even arrive at really explaining what we're trying to explain. And, quickly, I have two responses to that criticism. A, a lot of the supporting evidence for this theory comes from extra-biblical stuff. Comes from the hard labor of ancient Middle East linguists and ancient Middle East archaeologists. Specifically for theologians and conservative Bible scholars, that's a tough pill to swallow, and I can understand that. But, B, my other response is that there's a New Testament reality that we rarely grapple with in conservative Christian circles that we need to. I'm going to start there, and then we'll work our way backwards. But I'm loving it. Revelation 11.15. <laughs> I don't know why I used McDonald's interlude music, but I did, so here we go. That verse reads simply like this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. Wait, back up, what do we know of angels? They are messengers primarily. They primarily give us a message. Anyway, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, quote, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, for starters, I know, it's bad work to base a theology or base any sort of huge narrative history point off of stuff you find in Revelation. But this is really interesting, right? There's a certain assumption being made in this uh, echo from heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Has become. That seems to imply that it wasn't always that way. Now, of course, if that was the only New Testament passage that said anything about the kingdom of earth not being God's or Jesus's, okay, we would just probably have to leave that there and say we're not fully sure what this verse is talking about. But it's not. 
We mentioned in last episode, Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who are these forces of evil? I thought we weren't a dualistic religion. I thought we were a religion that had God above all else, and no one could compete with God, right? So how can we be facing these foes if the battle's already won? Earlier in Ephesians, Paul says this, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Hmm, that's not all Paul has to say on this account. Here's 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case talking about pagans, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Oh, I already skipped this one. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received, yada, yada, yada. The teachings of demons. What? Oh, there was a further point I wanted to make about 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The God of this world has blinded. The God of this world has blinded. There's a God of this world, and he's blinding people to the goodness of Jesus? That doesn't sound like Yahweh. That's clearly not Jesus, since he's blinding people from Jesus. So who's the God of this world? Paul later in the same chapter says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay that we have to, you know, protect. And then he talks about how all these bad things are happening to us, right? This is right when the Christian church is being persecuted under Roman rule. And Paul continues... Verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is making a loud and clear case here that there are things of substance that are beyond our five senses. And that those things have greater weight, have greater power, maybe, than the things of our body. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. Chapter 11, verses 13, 14. Yeah, chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We would read that now with our new nomenclature as in... Even Satan himself disguises himself as a messenger of light. Once again, for those people that think that Satan is Lucifer, is the highest archangel. Again, where's the beef? Where's the evidence here? Paul's saying he disguises himself as an angel of light, but he is not that. Hmm. Then, of course, we can talk about demons. Demons that show up all over the place in the Gospels. We read a couple passages from them last week. In the book of James, James, when talking about faith and the need for good works to match up in line with faith, he says, you believe in God, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. In maybe the funniest passage in the entire Bible, we have the story of the seven sons of Sceva. 
I gotta read it because it's funny. Starting in verse 11, going through verse 19, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and that evil spirits came out of them. Super weird. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house, here's the funny part, naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Ah, uh, this goes along with another story where there's a prophetess, a woman telling the future, and the disciples heal her, and she no longer can prophesy about the future. What? Why? What? How are, how are people doing these things, these magical things, by demons by these other powers. Why do the demons have power? Why is seemingly Satan the prince of the power of the air? Why is it that when he tempts Jesus in Matthew 4 and the corollaries in the other gospels, he says, I can give you the whole world. I'll give you dominion over everything. How does he have that authority to give Jesus that stuff? Was it all charade and didn't really have power? In answer to that, I want to invoke or give, uh, a moment to the theological theory of Christus Victor. This is very similar to ransom theology or ransom atonement. The idea in general is that the prominent or the most prominent thing that the crucifixion of Jesus accomplished was paying a ransom or overcoming Satan in the heavenly kingdom by his death and subsequent resurrection. The most prominent reflection of this we have in popular culture is Aslan's death in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's dying to pay a penalty to the Wicked Witch or to give the Wicked Witch what's owed. In this case, it's the Pevensey boy that deserved punishment by the Wicked Witch, the White Witch of the East. <laughs> Anyway, the Seven Sons of Skiva story, which I didn't tell perhaps very funnily, is funny just imagining these seven dudes somehow getting, like, wrinkled and undressed and their clothes tossed off by one dude. It's just, it's weird. It's a weird little story. And I think it's funny. But anyway, getting back to the Christus Victor thing, I want to read a couple paragraphs from a longer essay trying to explore and explain the Christus Victor view of the atonement from Renew.org. This is under the section entitled The Battle Against the Powers, and I quote, Intensifying the apocalyptic view of the time, Jesus and New Testament authors saw demonic influences not only in demonized and diseased people, but directly or indirectly in everything that was not consistent with God's reign. For example, swearing oaths, temptation, lying, legalism, false teachings, anger, spiritual blindness, and persecution were all seen as being satanically inspired. This ought not to surprise us since, again, Jesus and his followers all believed the devil had significant control over the entire world. 1 John 5.19 1 John 5.19, by the way, reads, and I quote, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
Continuing on then on Renew.org, For this reason, Paul taught that whatever earthly struggles disciples found themselves involved in, they must understand that the real struggle was against, quote, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12, see also 2 Corinthians 10.3-5. The kingdom of the roaring lion, 1 Peter 5.8, was an ever-present reality to Jesus and his earliest disciples. The last Pauline passage brings up a final and very important aspect of the New Testament's apocalyptic worldview. Beyond the frequent references to Satan and demons throughout the New Testament, we find Paul and others, e.g. 1 Peter 3:21 and 22, make reference to the other spiritual powers, most of which have their counterpart in the apocalyptic literature of the time. Thus we read about, quote, rulers, quote, principalities, quote, powers, and, quote, authorities. Romans 8.38, 13.1, 1 Corinthians 2.6, 8, 15.24, Ephesians 1.21, Ephesians 2.2, 3.10, Colossians 1.16, 2.10, along with dominions, Ephesians 1.21, Colossians 1.16, cosmic powers, again, Ephesians 6.12, thrones, Colossians 1.16, Spiritual forces, Ephesians 6.12 again. Elemental spirits of the universe, Colossians 2.8, 2.20, Galatians 4.3, as well as other spiritual entities. Further making the point, later in the article, the author quotes from three places in John's Gospel. I want to go ahead and read those passages. These are all Jesus in his last week of ministry, before his death, talking to the disciples around him and the people around him. First one's in John chapter 12, verses 27 through 31. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. And here's the important part. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about a singular entity here. A singular entity that is the ruler of this world. Two chapters later, John 14, 25-31. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you will have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the very week that Jesus is about to die for the forgiveness of our sins, and he's saying, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Still speaking to his disciples, two chapters later, John 16, 5-11. Again, Jesus speaking, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin 
and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So there is a ruler of this world. He is coming, and as he comes, the Holy Spirit will judge him. After Jesus dies and resurrects, Paul says of this act in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 16, that by his death, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world. Somehow, whether or not you believe in Christus Victor or the ransom theology of the atonement, whether you believe in that or not, Jesus' work on the cross or Jesus' coming into the world had a dramatic effect on the heavenly realms and those who occupied the heavenly realms, be it demons or be it Satan or whoever. Now, how is this all relevant to us? Well, it's relevant in a few ways, <laughs> but maybe the best answer lies in a prophecy found in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah 13.2 And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts. Hosts can also be translated as armies. So, the Lord of armies, and the word Lord here is Yahweh, declares the Yahweh of armies, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is coming. And it's going to overpower and cut off the kingdoms and the powers of this world. Think about, we read last week when Daniel talks to the angel and the angel says, Sorry, I tried to get to you, but I couldn't because I was held captive by the prince of Persia. What's going on? What does all this mean? What are the Elohim up to? And when I say Elohim, I do mean demons and Satan and that ilk because our earlier conclusion was that anyone that presides in the heavenly realms that is a spirit creature by nature is an Elohim. So therefore, demons would be Elohim. I know we haven't done a word study or really gotten down to who or what the demons are, but for now we can just call them Elohim, right? All right, so we're getting there, we're getting there. Oh, ah, but I've kind of missed the boat for the seas here. <laughs> the forest for the trees? Whatever. Why do we see this explosion of demonic activity and this explosion of talk of Satan in the New Testament when both demons and Satan barely seem to show up in the Old Testament. Why is there such a radical change? In the Old Testament, we see Yahweh, we see Elohim, and he's doing stuff, and he's fighting with Israel, fighting against the nations, but we don't see demons very often, considering the length of the Old Testament. Why don't we see people possessed by demons? It's an interesting question. What's going on? What changed? If we want to look at the Bible as one narrative, what changed to make these bad characters, these bad guys, suddenly infiltrate the land in the New Testament when they weren't there in the Old Testament. I have a personal theory on this that I'm just developing, so I could be way off. And this is a Dante theory, not a Dr. Heiser theory, which I'm basing this information all off of. This is my own little personal thing, and I, I could be super duper wrong, but I'll explore it at the end of today's episode. First, Let's look at 1 Kings 22. We examined this story when we were talking about God and lying. I forget, 50 episodes ago or so. Today, I want you to hear this story and don't worry about the morality of it. Don't worry about the weirdness of what God's doing here, okay? The context is long, but we don't need it to be long for our purposes. Just a prophet is telling King Ahab, bad dude, this vision that he has, okay? And here it is. 1 Kings 22, starting in verse 19. And Micaiah, that's the prophet, said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, word of Yahweh, 
I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Interjection, recall, we often say that Jesus is the one that's risen and now seated on God's right hand side, correct? Here we are in the host of heaven in this vision, this vision of where God dwells, and there's dudes sitting all around him, okay, on his right and his left. Verse 20, And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab, that's the evil king, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. What's this? We, we, we have a bunch of people talking. God asked a question, and those at his right and left are talking. They're trying to come up with answers. Verse 21, Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, Yahweh, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, the spirit, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Yahweh said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Verse 23, Now therefore behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. Yahweh has declared disaster for you. So there's a place in heaven where God talks to other spirits, and seemingly here, if we read this story at face value, God takes the best idea. I was listening to a podcast called God is Open. It's a podcast for open theists. And I have to quote this one guy from an episode where he said, God is crowdsourcing how to kill someone in this passage. That, that seems to be true. That seems to be the situation. Why is God asking other people's advice about what to do? Why is he doing that? Finally, we get back to where we started. Psalm 82. We started episode one here. Dr. Heiser starts his book, Unseen Realm, here. Here's how it reads. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Once more, that's Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. He says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, presumably Yahweh, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Interestingly, and maybe we'll hit this up a little closer in detail next week, but Baal, in the Canaanite pantheon, is called Son of the Most High. The Most High being El, and Baal being a second tier, a lower tier than El, the, the highest god in the Canaanite pantheon. We seem to have a pantheon situation here. Dr. Heiser's main theory, and he calls it the Divine Council narrative, or Divine Council theology, so he says, God has a pantheon, or a divine council. He takes opinions from his spirit folk, <laughs> his spirit realm. You can picture him like on a throne, and his counselors, whom he has created, are all around him. But what do they do, and why is God now judging his counselors who are around him? But before we get there, just see how this interpretation of Psalm 82 does match nicely with the story we just read from 1 Kings. Here God is sitting in a council, at a round robin table, you know, King Arthur and his knights, God's King Arthur, and he's like, Lancelot, dude, you suck. 
I'm judging you. Or, in the case of First Kings, God is King Arthur, and he's asking his knights of the round table, Hey guys, how do we deal with King Ahab? And Lancelot stands up and says, We should lie to him, God. And God's like, Ooh, that's the idea. That's the one. Good. You go do that, Lancelot. If you'll recall, I made a passioned plea last time that God is making all things new, both the heavens and the earth, that that his council, his heavenly realm, is as broken as our realm, our kingdom of earth. So reading Psalm 82, we begin to shed light that something's happened in the heavenlies. Now, we're mementoing, we're going back counter-chronologically here, and let's go back to the Torah. We're going to Deuteronomy. We're going to read Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 8. This is at a very interesting point in the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua has just been chosen as the successor after Moses. Moses is about to die, and he gives like his final song to his council, the Israelite leaders, those directly around him, to the people. So Deuteronomy 31 ends with verse 30 that says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Now, spoiler alert, most of this song is about (laughs) what the Israelites did in the wilderness and all their travails, but it starts this way. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Moses' song, which are the first eight verses of Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work, is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? And here we go. That first part was preamble. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. We're getting kind of a new creation story here. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Ring, ring, ring! Last week we said there were three references of sons of God in the Old Testament. We went over two of them. Here's number three, number three, number three, sons of God. We know sons of God are Elohim. We know sons of God are Elohim. We know sons of God are Elohim. If we know that... What the heck does it mean that God divided mankind up according to the number of the sons of God? Ring, 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 ring. What does it mean? Well, according to Dr. Heiser, Genesis chapter 11 gives us that answer. I'll read it first. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Children of man. Kind of like sons of man, huh? Hmm, interesting. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down 
and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. So Dr. Heiser and others think that Deuteronomy 32 is specifically referencing this story in Genesis 11. And while we Christians like to look here and say, hey look, this is a proof of the Trinity, God saying, come let us go down and confuse their language, it's Yahweh talking, who is this us he's talking to? We Christians like to just shrug and go like, oh yeah, Trinity, 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 woohoo. What, what sort of evidence would there be that this is referring to God with Jesus with the Holy Spirit? It seems to be just as likely, if not more, I would argue much more, considering the ancient East context, that God is talking to his council. This is his divine council that he's talking to. This is the pantheon he's talking to. So the divine council theory goes that God decided to divide up the nations, and he gave Elohim to be princes of the various peoples of the earth. Now, why did he do this? I'm going to explain that, at least my theory on that, here in a moment. But just think for a moment, if that's possible, if God divided and gave what we would call angels to have dominion over these various lands, then all of a sudden, the prince of the power of the air and Michael fighting the prince of Persia, suddenly that makes sense. There would be a prince of Persian. There would be an Elohim over a specific area. In Egypt, the fact that the Egyptian magicians can actually do some miraculous stuff would make sense because they have a miraculous Elohim that is their leader. Now, what we don't know from either of these contexts are what those Elohim decided to do in those nations. Did they demand worship? Did they become corrupt and decide they want to be like Yahweh? What did they want to do? Were they good Elohim to begin with and became bad once they were these leaders of these nations? What's going on there? Not going to answer that question. Maybe we'll start investigating it next week. But we're still mementoing. <laughs> but we're still mementoing here. Let's go back. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. The Elohim, the Elohim, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man, the Elohim, saw that the sons of Adam were attractive. Those who were in the second tier, the heavenly realms, saw that the people on the earthly realm were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So he said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Notice, notice here, God is only talking singularly. He's not saying we should blot out man. He's saying I'm, I, singular, am going to blot out man. Go back further, Genesis 3, after God condemns the serpent Adam and Eve, he says in verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That's, then the Yahweh Elohim said, 
Behold, the man has become like one of us, presumably Elohim, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat, and live forever, dot dot dot. Therefore, the Yahweh Elohim sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. The language here in Genesis 3.22 is very similar to that of Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. So we just kept going backwards and backwards. Here's what's going on. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, I think there was no divide between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. They were as if they were one. But then sin came, presumably both from Adam and the serpent, and there was a divorce. The great divorce between earth and heaven, and God no longer would walk with man. Then, the heavenly realm itself started pouring itself into the earthly realm. That's the sons of men mating with the daughters of Eve. We'll talk about that more in a later question. God's response to the two worlds being broken and now earth being more broken by the heavenly rebellion, or whatever you want to call that, was to wipe everything out. But instead, he saved Adam and he said, I'm going to try this thing again. And in trying again, he decided to do things differently. After Adam, the first story we're told about is the Tower of Babel, in which he gives, which he divides the world up between the Elohim to stand in dominion over it. Remember, Genesis 2, God gives Adam dominion over everything on earth. But then that dominion, ostensibly, is taken away when Adam sins and falls. I know, I'm throwing a lot out, conjecturing a lot, but the beauty here and what makes this narrative, this idea, this theory so promising to me is it explains why Israel is so darn important. God then, like all the other Elohim, he himself an Elohim, gives himself a nation. That nation being the line of Abraham, being Israel. And through Israel, he's going to prove that he is the Elohim of Elohim. He's the big bad leader. <laughs> The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Mighty God. He is above all other Elohim, and he's going to prove that for doing the same thing that the other Elohim have done, which is rule their own earthly dominions. But his dominion is going to last forever, and it's going to encompass the whole earth eventually. Through Israel, all will be blessed, because the whole world is not blessed under the other Elohim. This also makes the fall of Israel and Judah so sad. It's almost God giving up again. It's similar in scope and vision and narrative story to the flood itself. This is God's second try, and it's failed again. Yahweh has not made his name great through Israel when Judah and Israel are sacked by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And that's why the need for Jesus. Now, what I think from this, if you take this theory, what I think from this, since Israel is sacked... The dominion of the whole earth has now gone to the strongest Elohim. And I think the strongest Elohim is Satan. That's why Satan has authority over the whole earth. This earthly realm is his authority. And that's what Jesus comes on the earth to do away with. To bring dominion, to bring authority, to bring power back to God. To make Israel's name great once more. And to prove that that Elohim, the God of Israel, is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the creator king. Now, in ending... I want to give my own little personal theory, and this is all Dante, no Bible. Well, I'm going to read the Bible, but this is completely my own theory, so don't hang your pants on this theory. But Paul gives us this beautiful vision of Jesus in Philippians. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he was Elohim, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, by being a son of man, by being a son of Adam instead of a son of Elohim. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, although he was the only person in all of history to be both God and man, to be both Elohim and son of Adam. He emptied himself, he lowered his standard, and took away the mark of being Elohim, and lived as if he was only man. We call that the hypostatic union, that Jesus was both God and man, but he only considered himself man. That's why he always calls himself son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man. And he lets others refer to him as son of God. Here's my conjecture. Yahweh the Father did a similar thing. Although he is Elohim, but he, he is more than Elohim. He is the creator of everything. He is the God of gods. He is in a realm above the two realms. He is in a third tier that no one can touch. He is the arch creator, king, and yet, by becoming the Elohim of Israel, in a way, he humbled himself to be like the other Elohim. Next time, we're going to look at these other gods in a little bit more detail. We're going to look at this Nephilim situation, and we're going to start bringing in some extra-biblical accounts that infuse this story with detail, and perhaps obfuscate our narrative as well. But I gotta take a week, and I, I need to, for my own self, look at the history of the written words of Daniel, because it's a new thorn in my side, right? Daniel's the only book of the Bible that is written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. What's that Aramaic doing in there, and does that screw up the timetable of when the book is supposedly written? That's kind of on my heart, so I need to take a week to examine that, especially since Daniel's been so integral to this study. So we'll do that, and then presumably we'll be on to part five next time. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.